Hey guys, welcome to Calvary HSM. We are a place where we want to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. So we hope you enjoy this podcast. Hi, good evening, everybody. Uh, If I haven't had the privilege yet, my name is Drew Walton. I'm the associate director here at HSM. And gosh, I love church. Uh, not always so. I loved Jesus for a long time, but growing up, I was like, not a church kid. I mean, my parents made me be a church kid, but I was like, not stoked. Uh, and God won me over and I saw how awesome it was. And I just like love church. It's been my life at church. Uh, but if you're here and you're like, I'm not sure about this whole thing, uh, you're in good company and hopefully we'll have a good time tonight. Uh, before we do anything else, I just want to pause and acknowledge um, that since the last time we did a 5 p.m., um, we've sent some seniors on their way and we've inherited some freshmen and we're excited about it. And so, yeah, amen. Actually, let me do this. If you're a sophomore, junior, or senior, or a leader, make some noise for our freshmen. Yeah. Um, gang, we're pumped to have you. I know, so I know like when I was a freshman, I was like a little daunted by the high school of it all. I was stoked, don't get me wrong, but I was a little overwhelmed and I was like, are people gonna haze me or like, what's the situation? Uh, and so let me just put your fears to rest. We're stoked you're here. We've been looking forward to having you here. And summer is what's up. Um, I love summertime. I love summer programming that we get to do. And I was thinking about um, summers of yesteryear in, in uh, high school ministry. I want to share a story with you guys. Have you, have you guys ever, um, ever messed up and like known you did bad like immediately? Whereas like, oh shoot, I, I did something terrible. Um, me too. You're in good company. Uh, so years ago, we had an HSM event and it was at a beach, uh, and it was like, you know, we were like barbecuing burgers, and we were like playing spike ball, and like the whole thing, and like, I was, uh, I had a small group leader, shout out for HSM small groups, amazing, uh, but I had like my crew of guys that I was their leader week to week, and like, I was on the beach with my guys, there was a bunch of people around, there was like some people not from my group, we were hanging out, and we were talking, and somehow we got to the topic of trust falls. You know trust falls, right? Where you like, kind of like close your eyes and you just like fall backwards and you trust that the person's going to catch you. And for some people, it's like, what a thrill. Like, I love just like throwing caution to the wind and letting somebody catch me. Um, or you're like, drop me, I dare you, right? Uh, but then it's for other people, it's like a little more anxiety inducing. It's like, well, what if they drop me? Or what if they're one of those like prank people who's going to be like, I'll catch you. And then they like walk away and they put it on TikTok, right? Like that happens too. And so like, uh, you know, buyer beware on trust falls. But so we're talking about trust falls. And one of the guys who's one of the guys from my small group is like, yeah, I've, uh, I've never done a trust fall before. And we're like, bro, what? And he was like, yeah, I've never done a trust fall before. And every, like people, people were like, what? Like people like stopped and turned around. And we we're like, like never, never? Like that's a pretty common experience. And like no shade if you're in the room, if you've never done a trust fall, you know, we'll be here until 8 p.m. Like tonight could be your night. Um, but he was like, yeah, honestly, like I just like, it freaks me out a little bit. Like I feel like they'll drop me. And it was, I was like, well, yeah, that's like the whole point of the exercise. It's a trust fall, right? Like it's a little scary and you have to trust the people that are going to catch you. And so the conversation goes on for a while. Um, uh, and Finally, we convince him. We're like, bro, tonight's your night. We're going to do the trust fall. Like it's trust fall time. And I was like, my guy, I got you. Like I personally will catch you. Like this will be like a great first experience of a trust fall. You're like conquer your feel, fear of falling like five feet to the ground. Um, and uh, we'll do this. And everyone's like, yeah, let's do it. And then somehow, oh gosh, somehow we talked him into like climbing up onto a picnic table and doing it from a height. We're like, this is going to be great, bro. Like, trust the people that you already know where this story's going. That's why the reaction's happening that's happening. But so we get him, like, up on, like, not on, like, the bench part either, like, on the table part. And he's, like, up there, like, are you promise you'll catch me? I was like, bro, we got you. Like, we will catch you. He's like, do you promise? I was like, yeah, dude. This is going to, like, grow our friendship. <sighs> Guys, honestly, I thought I had more time before he chose to trust me, but here's what happens. He's like, you trust, he's like, you, you promise? I was like, yes. And um, I, I was like, he's gonna count down or something. And so he's like there and he's decided that he's given me his trust. Um, like something out of a movie, my attention's here on him. And then immediately from down the beach, someone's like, Drew, and throws a football. I'm like, oh, what's up? And right then, he decides to give me all of his trust and just like the full weight of his body. And not even like, you know when you can like bend your knees just in case? 
None of that. Like he trusted me. The full weight of his body off the table, just like a onto the sand. And I, like, like I said, immediately I was like, I messed up. <laughs> like, oh no. And he looks me in the eyes and the, there was like glistening betrayal in his eyes. And I, he literally said the words to me. He goes, I trusted you. And I was like, bro, I'm so sorry. Like I didn't, that was not on purpose. I didn't, I didn't, like I thought you were going to give me more warning. I thought we were going to count or something. And he was so upset, like could not have been more upset. Now, long story short, we were fine, right? Like he forgave me and ultimately he trustful. Yeah, what a triumph. Uh, and it was fine. But sometimes um, we give people our trust and it doesn't go our way, right? Amen. Anybody ever like given someone their trust and it kind of like blew up in your face? I see some like, like discreet hand raises from the back. I'm not, don't worry. I'm not going to make you name names or anything. Uh, but that's just the reality of life, right? Like sometimes we get ourselves in situations or situations just come our way. Um, that suck. Sometimes things hurt, right? And so we're spending the next six weeks, like Janae and JD told us, in a series that we're calling Life Hurts. It just does, right? Anybody object to that? Anyone like, life is sunshine and roses, 100% of the time, never had a problem before. No, we're all in the room because we know it's true. Life hurts, that's a true statement, but also a true statement is that God heals, right? Like life hurts, but God heals. And so what we wanna do is we wanna take the next few weeks and really like kind of pop the hood and examine what's going on underneath that statement. Like when we encounter suffering in our lives, when we encounter discomfort and pain and hardship, if we know that that's just part of the human experience, right? Like life hurts, but we also know that God heals and that he loves us and that he has good plans for us and he has more for us. Not that we will never encounter hardship in our life, but that he's a healing God, he's a loving God. He can take every pain and assign it a purpose. Like life hurts, but God heals. And so what we wanna do is take the next few weeks and examine that together to look at some of the key things that cause us pain in our lives, that cause us suffering in our lives, uh, the greatest discomfort in our lives and ask the question, okay, if this is a part of life and this hurts, what can I expect from God to heal? And how do I get up under that? And how do I walk in that? And what does God ask of me in the midst of that? And so tonight we're talking about betrayal. Now there's like betrayal of like, you dropped me on the sand and you promised and we can like chuckle and move on. Uh, but then there's like betrayal, betrayal, right? And I don't wanna assume that you're in this room and you've never experienced betrayal, betrayal before. Actually, it's funny. Like, I find whenever I get to teach um, that in like the week leading up, like my life experiences will like confirm the thing that God's showing me in scripture. And it was so funny, like this week, well actually it was not funny, but it was like, I noticed what I noticed. But this weekend I got to meet up with two different friends that I was catching up with, hadn't seen in a long time. Um, and both of them, as we kind of like got into catching up and sharing life, both of them shared stories with me. These are separate from each other. Both of them shared stories with me of deep betrayal that they'd been through in the last few years. One of the guys uh, was like, had asked about like a mutual friend. He's like, hey, do you ever talk to so-and-so? And I was like, yeah, what? Like, do you not talk to so-and-so anymore? And he was like, yeah, actually, like, are you not aware of like, just we had a falling out? I was like, no, I didn't, I didn't know. Like, can I ask? Like, what happened? And he was like, yeah, basically, I don't want to go into details, but like, I was going through this really hard season and I reached out and asked for help and he kind of just blew me off like didn't give me the time of day and I reached out like multiple times and it was just kind of like gave me nothing just created nothing but distance and just like I was hurting and I needed help and I got the courage to ask for the help he wasn't there for me and in fact like multiple friends just distanced themselves from me and it hurt so much and I was like dang dude I'm so sorry like that's gnarly I didn't know that right uh, and then I talked to another guy who for him the betrayal came from his family situation right like family has its own unique things where it's like it, we're family we're supposed to be with each other and for each other like no matter what like thick as thieves and sometimes when a family member um, doesn't want to be a part of that whether they walk away from you or whether they believe untrue things about you or whether uh, they're just like, whatever, something goes off the rails. It can be deeply painful. And the interesting thing is we were talking about betrayal and both of them use language that's super common when we talk about betrayal, right? And it's this idea of pain, right? Like you've heard the, uh, the adage, uh, I'll let you fill in the blank. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's, that's everybody being like, that's a load. Words totally hurt. Like that kind of like dull, like And here's the thing. Scientifically, that statement has been proven false, right? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never 
hurt me. Actually quite untrue. And I understand kind of like the heart behind it, like the thinking behind it, right? It's this notion of like, yeah, if somebody takes a baseball bat to my back, they're probably going to break something, right? Like that will like physically hurt me. We can all agree to that. Um, And while words can be hurtful, I think what the heart behind that statement is, yeah, words can be hurtful, but at the same time, it's valuable for us to build kind of like a resilience, right? Where like I have like a grit and a toughness where like every stray word that comes my way isn't just going to like lay me down for the count, right? Like, I think that's kind of like the notion behind the idea of sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But actually, they found scientifically um, that when you experience social pain or emotional pain, um, that actually it translates into your body and there's very little difference to it from physical pain. In fact, I was reading an article recently in Forbes. Let me just read an excerpt of this to you. It says this, rejection hurts. Amen? Anyone ever been rejected? Woo, rejection club. Um, Rejection hurts, and neuroscience suggests that it literally hurts. Although the brain does not process emotional pain and physical pain identically, research on neural pathways suggests that there's substantial overlap between the experience of physical pain and the experience of social pain. The cascading event that occurs and regions activated in our brains and therefore our reactions to the acute pain appear to be similar. Like, like really, like when you experience social pain or emotional pain, it lives, it exists in your body. It physicalizes in physical ways. And you probably are hearing this and you're like, yeah, that's, that, that rings true. Like, I've experienced something like that. It goes on. Check this out. It says, further, it seems the impact may not be limited to just how the brain processes emotions and pain associated with rejection. But that real heartbreak can actually take a toll on your IQ. According to research from Case Western University, exposure to rejection led participants in a study to have an immediate drop in reasoning by 30% and IQ by 25%. So for just like a little bit of wisdom for you, if you're heartbroken or experiencing social pain, maybe seek some counsel before making like a huge life decision because sometimes our reasoning is impaired. Sometimes our ability to like perceive things clearly are impaired, right? But the reality is, is that when we experience emotional pain, when we experience physical or uh, social pain, it physicalizes in our body, right? Like this is why art exists, right? Like think you experience something good or bad, it lives in your body and you have to put it somewhere, right? Like you have to extract it from your body and put it somewhere else to process through it and deal with it. So for you, maybe that's like, I need to write a song. I need to take this experience that I had and take it and condense it and put it on the paper or put it in the guitar or the piano. And I need to extract it from me. So it doesn't just like weigh me down always. I need to put it somewhere, right? Or maybe you're like, I need to go and I need to physicalize this. I need to hit a punching bag, right? Like I got to get it out of my body. Cause if I just carry it around with me, it'll kill me from the inside right? Or maybe it's, I need to go and make a film about this thing. Or maybe it's, I need to sit with my therapist and just talk about it so that I'm not the only one carrying this around, right? But it exists in our body and we need to put it somewhere. But the reality is, is that we all experience some form of betrayal through the course of our life. And my hope and my prayer for you is that you don't experience a lot of it, but it's one of the sort of unavoidable realities of life. And so for you, maybe you've experienced the betrayal of like a friend or a loved one spread a rumor about you or gossiped about you, right? Like that's brutal. I've had that happen before where it's like somebody I find out down the road, like someone who I thought was like, Team Drew, like someone who I thought had my back, was actually going around and saying negative things about me, right? Or un- true or untrue. Like sometimes people uh, are spreading things about you that are true, but it still sucks, right? And then other times people are saying things about you totally untrue or just like totally twisted and they're just spreading it around or they like catch wind of the rumor meal and it's like they know you, but for whatever reason they just chose to believe these things other people are saying about you and then spread them forward and they start acting like it's true, right? Have you ever had the experience where it's like, it seems like everyone's talking about me about this and no one's talking to me about this? And that's painful, guys. That's like isolating, that's heavy, that like lives in you in a certain way. Maybe you've experienced the betrayal of like someone you trust screenshotted a message you sent them and shared it with other people or screenshotted a photo, a private photo and sent it around, right? And there's a betrayal. I thought this was safe with you. I thought it would stay between you and me, but you made the decision to share it with other people who I had no intention of ever seeing that or knowing that right? A betrayal happens. Maybe for you, it's you were in love 
and you thought things were going to go the distance with that person, and then that person decided otherwise and broke it off with you. And maybe it blindsided you, you didn't see it coming, and there's this like fracture in your heart, a betrayal, right? It's like, I thought this one thing, you didn't really give me warning, uh, you were communicating that everything was fine, and then you got weird and quiet, and then you ended things with me, right? And it feels like a betrayal, right? Like, what do we do with that? Maybe for you, you've experienced a family member walking out on you. Right, like somewhere where it was like, it is their role to be there for you, to care for you, to help you grow into the person you're gonna be. And maybe they just opted out for whatever reason. Uh, maybe, maybe you have no idea why, right? Like sometimes with betrayal, we like in time get the context where it's like, dang, that, it doesn't make it right, but I understand why you did this thing. And then sometimes we just live with the not knowing. We never know why someone did what they did. And maybe for you, it's just someone close to you violates your trust. Like you thought they were a safe person. They turned out to not be a safe person. And here's the interesting thing. When we're betrayed, uh, there's actually two things that we experience in the midst of that. The first we've already talked about. The first is pain, right? Like when you experience betrayal, like a fracture in that relationship, you thought things were one way. Abruptly, it became clear to you that they were a different way. Usually something has happened against you in an antagonistic way, and you're kind of left to pick up the pieces or deal with the fallout of it, right? So first, there's the pain that, that hits you, right? Like this is a painful experience. I thought this actually actually this, right? But then the second component of betrayal is actually grief. Uh, and now grief is a word that we usually associate with death, right? Like that, like that you hear grief and the first thing you think is probably death. Like if you've ever lost a loved one, first let me just say like, uh, I've experienced that and it's rough, right? Like grief is such a weird process. Even like, it's sort of like nobody does it the exact same way. There's not like a right way to grieve. Like even specialists will tell you like there's like all the stages of grief, but they don't always show up in, in the same order. Like everyone kind of does them differently. Sometimes you'll like really experience this part of it intensely and this part's kind of like bloop, move past that fine. Sometimes you'll like think you're fine for a long time and be like, I don't know why I don't feel anything. And then it'll like hit you like a ton of bricks. Like grief is a weird thing. And usually we think just death, but here's the thing is actually when somebody betrays you, there's a couple deaths that happen in that and you to process it and move forward actually have to grieve those deaths. The first is you, when somebody betrays you, part of your process is that you have to give yourself the opportunity to grieve the death of the person you thought they were. Right, like you've been in a relationship with somebody and you had this whole notion about them and you loved that version of that person. And now we gotta be careful not to like put people on pedestals and be like, oh, this person's supposed to be perfect for me and never can mess up or do anything wrong. Like we have to be careful about that because that's not fair to do to someone. But when we have a view of somebody and then our experience of them shows that they're dramatically different than we had thought they were, you have to grieve the death of how you saw that person, right? The next thing is that you have to grieve the death of that relationship existing the way that it exists. Because before you felt this freedom to trust them, you felt this safety of like, they are on my team, they have my back, um, they wouldn't harm me, they want what's best for me. And when somebody betrays that, we have to grieve the death of that relationship existing in that way. And now sometimes that relationship, you can pick up the pieces and you can heal and you can mend and you can reconcile and build something beautiful out of it and move forward together. Other times it's like, do you know what? It's messy and you know what? We, we can settle what we got to settle and there's peace, but it's best if we just go our separate ways. Both are, are options that happen in this process, but sometimes you have to grieve the death of the relationship that you had with them. The next is sometimes we have to grieve the death of the trust that we had given them. Like trust is a risky pursuit. It's a really important pursuit. If you never trust anybody, your life's not gonna be very quality at all. You'll be very lonely. You'll get very cynical and jaded. Like trust is actually a really important thing for your health. It's like a, a unique vitamin you can't get anywhere else. Like you have to be in a relationship. You have to trust someone. Um, I hope in my prayers that you have the discernment and trust people who are worthy of it, right? But in those situations, when someone betrays you, you have to grieve the death of that trust right? Like I gave you this trust and you dropped the ball on it and I have to grieve that. And then finally, and this is one I think catches people off guard, is that when somebody betrays you, oftentimes you have to grieve the death of your confidence in your own ability to tell who is trustworthy. Like when you trust somebody and you think that they're safe and then they violate that, they betray that, oftentimes that can throw you into a spiral of 
okay, well, I thought they were safe and they weren't safe. So is my like meter of who's trustworthy like way off? Is it like all over the place? Like, can I trust myself at all to find people? And oftentimes we'll shut down, we'll push people away, we'll withdraw and we'll isolate. And it becomes very, very lonely and very, very unhealthy. And I've seen this happen. I've experienced betrayal in my life. I'm, I'm sure probably a lot of the people in the room have experienced something akin to this. Um, and it's important to acknowledge that it's real. And uh, here's, here's the thing, is that being betrayed can feel very, very lonely. And at the same time, in your betrayal, you are not alone. Like it has to be said, like, just because you feel lonely in a situation doesn't mean that you are alone in that situation, right? Like our series is titled, Life Hurts, God Heals. And so first I wanna say this, like if you're in the room right now and you've experienced a betrayal or if you're in the room right now and you're currently going through, like you're on the front lines and like betrayal is active in your life right now. First thing I wanna say to you is, You've got people in this room right now who want to be your allies, who want to be on your side, who want to care for you. You've got adult leaders. I'm sure you have peers you could find in this room. Even if you wandered in and this is your first time at HSM and you're like, I don't even know what I think about Jesus. And I just kind of like don't know anybody here. Let me tell you, like there are people here for you if you're willing to be brave and look for them. Right? Like you don't have to go through anything alone. That's the beauty of how God designed the church. I love church. I love our church. I have a mug that I do my quiet time with every morning and it says, I love my church because I do. Church is an amazing place. Like it's amazing that God designed this built-in family where like you, like let's say that you move to, I don't know, let's say you move to France in a couple years, that you could go and find a church and plug in. And anywhere you go in the world that you can be connected to people who if they're aligning their hearts to Jesus, that they will be with you and for you. And you can be with them and for them. It's a beautiful thing. So even when you go through seasons where you're suffering and you feel lonely, you're not alone. You have access to community that will love you, that will care for you, that will support you, and then be even higher than that. What I need you to hear tonight is that you're not alone because Jesus draws near to you in your suffering. Like he's always accessible to us. He's always available to us. He, you have his undivided attention. Maybe you're someone where you go through life and you kind of just like, you're picking up on clues and you feel like overlooked by people. It's like, oh, maybe I'm like a good time friend or like people will add me in after the fact. But like, I don't feel like I have anyone's like undivided attention. Let me just tell you, you have God's undivided attention. Like you can come to him 24 seven and he's gonna be right there with you. That's all the time. But Psalm 34 tells us something about when we're suffering that's unique. It says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those, he's with those who are crushed in spirit. And I think sometimes we tell ourselves the story like when I'm hurting, I tell myself the story of like, God must be somewhere far away, otherwise I wouldn't be hurting. And that's just not true. Actually, what the scripture tells us is that he's never more close than when you're in struggle. And that doesn't mean you need to seek out struggle to get the closeness of God because he wants to be with you always. But when you're in struggle and you're looking around being like, what is going on in my life? Where is God? You have an answer from scripture and the answer is he's right there with you. He's right by your side. He's with you. And not only that, not only is he like attentive and like, oh, that must be so hard. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but doesn't get it. Right? Like, you know, when someone, it's like kind of frustrating when someone like just doesn't get it and they're like trying their best. And it's like, I appreciate that you're trying, but like you have no idea what you're talking about. And this is kind of awkward. Not so. Not only is he with you in your suffering, he actually knows exactly what it's like. That's important, that you have a God who understands what suffering is, who understands what betrayal feels like from beginning to end. That's significant. You know, Jesus, um, it's, it's amazing, you know, like the gospel, right? I can't get over the gospel, but like God put on flesh to come and have a 33-year-long human experience so that, well, to accomplish a, a great many things, chiefly to be able to take on your sin so that you don't have to carry it and you won't be separated from God. 
if you'll turn to him. Like, that's huge, right? Like, I've done some things in my life, you guys. I'm sure you've done some things, but like, I've got a few more years on you of screwing up and doing bad things. I've done some things in my life that I'm not proud of. Like, I've done some things in my life where it's like, if you put it on that screen and all of you could see it, I'd be horrified, right? Um, That Jesus says, do you know what? I love you. And that's not a disqualifying feature of who you are. Right? Like, that doesn't disqualify you from me wanting relationship with you. That doesn't disqualify you from my love. And in fact, I'm going to settle the debt on that so that there's nothing standing between us, no obstructions, right? So he accomplished that, but not only that, he lived 33 years as a human. The scripture tells us that he was fully God, but he was also fully human, fully man. Like, he had the full human experience, and he knows what it's like, right? And in the last three years of his life, when Jesus was on mission, on ministry, um, he uh, had his crew, right? You've probably got your crew. I hope you've got a good crew, uh, people uh, that you do life with, people that have your back. But Jesus had his 12 people um, who were the closest relationships in his life, the 12 disciples, right? But Jesus experienced betrayal on some level from all of them. The 12 closest relationships in his life. Now, Judas, who we'll get into in a second, perhaps you've heard Judas or maybe just like even as like a pop culture reference, like someone like does something that you don't like. It's like, oh, Judas, right? Like you betrayed me. Um, Judas is one of the 12 disciples, stabs Jesus in the back. Uh, we'll look at that in a second. But the other 12 um, kind of disappear when the going gets tough. Right? Like, they kind of like, it's like, oh, I have these 11 other friends, and then suddenly they're like, ooh, I'm going to kind of look out for me. Uh, It seems like the tide's turning on this Jesus guy. Right? Betrayal. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the story of this so that we can see, A, that Jesus understands, but B, that he responds in a surprising way. And there's something for you in that. And so in Matthew 26, uh, we're going to put it on the screen, or if you read better uh, in paper or like your Bible app, if you're kind of newer to church or faith and don't have a Bible, A, we'll hook you up with a paper one if you want it. And B, there's a free app. If you just go to the app store and type in Bible and download it, you have the Bible and as many translations as you could ever dream for um, and organized Bible space and all of that. Check it out. It's great. Um, But you can follow along or we'll put it on the screen. I'll read it to you. Um, But in Matthew 26, here's what's been going on is um, for years, the disciples have been by Jesus' side. They live together. They eat together. uh, They they work together. They've seen Jesus do amazing things. They've seen him perform miracles. And here's the thing. Jesus is fully man and fully God, which means that he is perfect, right? That for the years they've been with him, he's done nothing but love them well. Like he's never like done a thing where I was like, oh, that kind of sucked that Jesus did that. Like I'm going to remember that someday if I'm ever mad, right? Like he never fumbled the ball, like never kind of like stabbed them in the back or overlooked. Like he took such good care of his friends. He was an amazing friend, an amazing teacher, an amazing shepherd to these guys. And what we're going to see here is that we don't really know why, but something changes in one of his disciples, something just changes where he just decides he wants something else. Check this out. In Matthew 26, in verse 14, it says, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, this is like a normal day. If you read before, it's like, they're just kind of like moving along, worshiping, uh, performing miracles. It says this, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. The chief priest did not like Jesus. They saw him as a threat and they were looking for opportunities to throw him in jail or worse. And so it says, then one of the 12, the one called Judas, went to the chief priest and he asked them. So kind of like putting, it, putting the feelers out in the water. He says, what are you willing to give me if, hypothetically, if I deliver him to you, like if I give you guys what you want, if I hand Jesus over to you guys, like what's in it for me? I'm just kind of like trying to weigh my options. And so it says, so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver and he agrees to it. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, silver is probably part of it, but remember he goes in ready to betray Jesus to begin with. We don't know why. Like, we know Jesus didn't do anything to, like, betray Judas. It wasn't like a one-upsman thing of, like, knife in the back, so a knife in the front. Ha-ha, I got you now, Jesus. It was none of that. Um, Jesus is God. He was perfect. In him, there is no flaw. There's no shifting sands. Like, he's consistent. He's consistent in his character. He's consistent in his behavior. He's consistent in his love. Something switches in Judas. Um, the money sweetens the deal. We don't know why he changes his mind about Jesus. And so, but it says that from then on, Judas was watching for an opportunity to hand him over. So in other 
words. Judas made up his mind about Jesus to stab Jesus in the back, and then he put on a face and went right back into the friend group and pretended like nothing had changed. An enemy in the camp. It goes on. It says, following that, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, this is Passover, right? Like Passover is from the Old Testament. If you've ever seen like Prince of Egypt or read the book of Exodus, like Passover is like the final plague of Egypt where um, God's going to kill all the firstborn. But he says like, I will spare anybody who puts the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. And so his chosen people, God tells in his mercy, he says, it, it takes the blood of the lamb over your doorpost. And ultimately that's something that's gonna point forward to Jesus, the lamb of God, which the disciples haven't really figured out yet. But they're celebrating Passover, right? This amazing event happens. They commemorate it each year. Uh, and this is about to be Jesus' last Passover dinner before he goes to the cross. The disciples don't know it. Jesus is fully aware. He says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover. Jesus replies, he says, go into the city to a certain man. So he has someone picked out, presumably someone that they don't even know, kind of like find the dude in the green hat with the Birkenstocks and he, <laughs> he'll tell you what to do. Uh, so like, okay, we're on a mission from Jesus, right? Like they go into the city. He says, um, uh, he says, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples do as Jesus directed and they prepare the Passover, right? So um, again, Judas is there pretending like everything's fine, looking for his opportunity to strike because there's silver in it for him and some other motivation that we don't know. I'm not going to satisfy that for you because we don't know why he did it. Um, but... They go to the dinner, and it says, when evening came, right? Like, so they're there, they have the rest of their day, the dinner's prepared, they're doing the Passover, uh, they're sitting, it's probably like a little later in the evening, kind of that point in dinner where it's like a little relaxing, people are like finishing up their plates, someone's ordering espresso to the table, right? Like, you know dinner, you have it, I hope. Um, it says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table, kind of taking a load off with the 12, and while they were eating... Suddenly he brings up a new topic, and here's what he says to the guys. They're having a perfectly lovely dinner. Uh, and then Jesus, kind of out of the blue, says, so uh, guys, truly, I tell you, so in other words, hey, in all seriousness, like no joking around here, he says, truly, I tell you, one of you is about to betray me. In other words, he's saying like, hey, I just want to like call out the elephant in the room. Somebody here in this room right now is gearing up to betray me. And I just want you to know that I already know about it. Like I'm already aware, right? And as you can imagine, you're having like a perfectly nice dinner. And then Jesus says like, one of you all is going to betray me. He's going to stab me in the back. You can just imagine the air just like leaves the room. Like everyone's like, huh? Like, I, I imagine that scene where it's like, oh, and like the food falls out of someone's mouth because they're just like shocked. They're like, what? Uh, but he says, yeah, one of you is going to betray me. So it says this. It says, they were very sad, right? Because it's like, well, we love Jesus. He's been the best thing to ever happen in our lives. Uh, we would go to the ends of the earth for him. It says, they're very sad. And they begin to say to him, one after the other, well, surely you don't mean me. Lord, right? Like there's that part, you know, you know that experience where it's like you get your dad's like, hey, we need to talk later. Or it's like, hey, you're like page to the principal's office. And even though you like know you didn't do anything wrong immediately, you're like, I'm in trouble. Why am I in trouble? Like, what did I do wrong? You're like going through the Rolodex of like all the things you could have possibly done that caught up with you now, right? Like you feel like you're in trouble. So they kind of have that similar response where he's like, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all just like, oh my gosh, it's not going to be me. Is it like, what if it's me? Do I have like some hidden resentment towards Jesus? I didn't think I did. Right? And so they're going through kind of one at a time, like, not me, right, Lord? And he's kind of like, no, not you, not you, not you. Um, and then Jesus goes on. He says, the one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. And at that point, everyone knows who he's talking about. He says, the son of man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It'd be better for him if he'd not been born. So then Judas, who's been kind of like wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, kind of decides to play the part as well. 
says, Judas, the one who would betray him, says the same thing that the other guys had said. He, he goes, well, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. And you could imagine in that moment that like the scripture would like take a detour and it would be like, and then Jesus was like, yeah, I mean you. And fire came out of his eyes and incinerated Judas and everyone was amazed, right? <laughs> or that Jesus was like, yes, you, Judas, and like reached into his chest and pulled his heart out like Indiana Jones style and Judas dropped dead, right? Because like he's Jesus, he could do that. He has all power and all authority, right? But Jesus doesn't do that, right? There's just this charged moment where Judas looks Jesus in the eye. Jesus already knows, and Judas knows that Jesus knows. Jesus looks him in the eye. Judas looks back, and he pretends. He lies to him through his teeth. He goes, well, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus answers. He says, you've said so. In other words, if you say so. And they go on with dinner. So later that evening, Jesus goes famously to the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what he's about to do. He's about to go to the cross. Like he knows he's being handed over, arrested. Uh, he's going to be tortured. He'll be whipped within an inch of his life. He'll be nailed to a cross. He'll, he'll asphyxiate up on that cross. Uh, he'll give up his life for us um, and then die. And then spoiler alert, if you haven't gone there, the good news is that he doesn't stay dead. Like the resurrection is like the whole thing, right? That's why it's good news. So we know where the story's going. Nobody but Jesus else does. Um, but so Jesus goes to the garden to pray, to be with the father, to like dig for the strength to do this thing that he's about to do. And he brings some of the disciples with him. They're praying with him. There's a whole fiasco where he's like, stay up and pray. And they're like, sure, got it, Lord. And then they promptly fall asleep, um, which is so relatable. Uh, anyone like, I'm going to read the Bible right before bed. And then you just like immediately fall asleep. Anyone? I've been there. Um, but so anyways, he's been in the Garden of Gethsemane, like digging deep into the Lord for the strength to do what he's about to do. And then Judas shows up. So Jesus is speaking with the disciples, and it says this in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. So in other words, Judas is with this like angry mob who's like, let's kill Jesus, um, before going into the garden. And he's like, okay, we'll have a special signal so you all know which one Jesus is. Because remember, nobody had like Google or TikTok. Like Jesus didn't have an Instagram where people knew his face. It was like they needed to know someone who knew him um, to be like, there he is over there, unless you knew him personally. And so the signal that Judas picks is to kiss Jesus on the cheek. Basically, I'm gonna go and say what's up to all the disciples, kind of give them the like, you know, like one hand, maybe like the bat pack or like the, like whoop or whatever, you know. But Jesus, I'm gonna kiss that one on the cheek. So the, I'm going to fake the greatest affection for the one that I'm actually putting a knife into secretly, right? And so this is what happens. Um, they go into the garden. It says, now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. And the mob um, turns. And again, this would be a, a moment in the story where you would think that it would be like, and so Jesus, like Thor from Marvel, brought down lightning from heaven and smote Judas. And that's not what happens, right? Or like Jesus did like a punch and then Judas went flying three miles, right? Not what happens. He says this, Judas kisses him on the cheek, just betrays him to his face. And Jesus replied, he looks him in the eye, he says, do what you came for. And he calls him friend. He says, do what you came for, friend. It says this, then the men step forward, seize Jesus, arrest him, without one of Jesus' companions, <laughs> reaches for his sword, draws it out, strikes one of the servants of the high priest, cuts off his ear. He's like, ready. He's like, let's go. Like, come on, give me a hold me back. Right? Like, cuts off the ear. Um, here's how Jesus responds. Again, he goes, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. In other words, we're not revenge people. Like, put your sword away. Like, that's not what this, that's not the kind of story this is in the kingdom of God. Like, drop your sword. Put it away. And he says, 
do you think that I can't call on my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He says, put your sword away. It's not that kind of story. We're not that kind of family. We're not that kind of kingdom. Drop your sword. This isn't like a revenge quest where we're going to go after everyone who ever did wrong to us and we're going to show them. That's not what this is. And so Jesus allows himself to be taken. He's given an unfair trial. Remember, he's flogged and beaten within an inch of his life. He's nailed to a cross, gives up his life, um, and dies. And then three days later, returns to the grave. But what I want to draw your attention to is actually what happens earlier in the night at dinner um, that I think we kind of like don't put in the context of what um, is happening in this story. Um, earlier that night, two things happen, and it's with Jesus and all of the disciples, all 12. He already knows Judas has agreed to betray him, is going to betray him. He already knows that Peter is going to pretend that he never knew Jesus, right? He's going to be like gung-ho, like, to the end with you, Jesus. Uh, and then when someone's like, you know Jesus? He's like, I don't know Jesus. Jesus who? You've got the wrong guy, right? He's going to try to save his skin. And the other disciples will scatter. He already knows all this is going to happen. He already knows he's about to be betrayed. He knows that they're not going to have his back. He knows Judas is going to stab a knife in his back. And two things happen at dinner that night, knowing that. First of all, he doesn't uninvite anyone from dinner. He's not like, everyone, we're going to have Passover, except for you, Judas. You wait outside, right? He doesn't uninvite anybody. But the first thing he does is this. He washes their feet. All 12 of them. He washes the feet of his betrayer. And I think like, Sometimes we kind of just like view it, uh, like we hear about like foot washing in the Bible um, and we think like, oh, like what a nice like metaphorical act of servitude, right? Because it was like, if you were like the king of the castle, you would never like get on your knees and wash someone's feet because they were dirty and gross. Actually, it's funny, like I've, I've never seen like a turnaround like in the last few years of like this generation's like aversion to feet stuff, like put the dogs away, right? Like I remember I wore flip-flops once and people were like, your dogs are barking. I was like, what are we talking about? What's happening? Uh, so we're very like anti-feet apparently. Um, but I say it's summer, the kennel's closed. Um, anywho, um, but first of all, he washes every single one of their feet because back in that day, your feet were filthy. You would walk most places, right? Like there was no skateboards. There were no cars. There was no bicycles. Just you walked everywhere and you didn't have closed-toed shoes. You had sandals. And so your feet would just be like caked on. Like have you ever had like a long day at the beach and you come back and your feet are like gross? Like maybe there's like some tar on the bottom and there's like all the sand that like didn't, you didn't get off before you get in the car, all of that. Like, and so what you would do is it was customary to, ha to wash your feet before entering someone's home in nicer homes there would be a servant who would do that for you, um, but certainly not anybody like in the family and certainly not the patriarch or not the like king of the castle, lord of the manor, like never. And so Jesus is making a point with this, but also don't forget the context. This is the night that he's about to be betrayed by these people and he knows it and he chooses still to say, do you know what? I don't need anything from you. I came here to give things to you. I want things for you. And even though you're stabbing me in the back, I love you. And let me get down on the ground and wash your feet. The second thing that happens at that dinner is he serves, he invites them to join him. He serves each of them the very first communion. Right? Like if you've ever been around church before, you've probably experienced communion, right? It's bread and wine. Uh, usually it's bread and juice uh, in like the modern church uh, for legal reasons. But, um, but what he does is he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, I want you guys to look at this image. And whenever you see someone breaking bread, I want you to remember that I'm breaking my body for you. I'm allowing this to happen to me for you. And then he takes the wine and he pours the wine. And he says, I want you, when you see this, I want you to remember my blood, that I'm pouring out my blood for you because I love you and I want to forgive you, right? And in the context of this, they're about to betray him. The air is charged with this um, deception, with this ill intent. And Jesus knows, and they know that Jesus knows, and he chooses to wash their feet and invite them into communion. That is radical love, my friends. That is not someone who's thirsty for blood. That is not someone who's out for vengeance. That is someone who loves in a way that can only be described as supernatural. 
And so here's what I want to do. I want to invite the band back up. But uh, now I want to take this and ask the question. So if this is the way that God responds, if this is the way um, that it functions in the kingdom of God, and we've been invited into this kingdom, what does it look like for us when we experience betrayal? What does it look like for you when betrayal touches your life? And I want to jump over to 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 21, here's what it says. This is Peter writing to the church, to people like us, to men and women, um, the ancient world, and it, through the centuries, through the millennia, has made its way to us, and it's as true for us as it was for them. Peter says this to the church. He says, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So remember this, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was stabbed in the back by one of his closest friends. He was abandoned by the rest of them. And the key thing to remember is you are not alone. When you experience that, you are not alone. You have access to a family here and really in any church that you would walk into that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a family who will be with you and will be for you. But more important than that, more precious than that, you have a God who knows what it's like and he draws near to the suffering. You are not alone. You are never alone. And the way that Jesus reacts is important. It goes on and it says this. In verse 22, it says, So he committed no sin, and no deceit was found on his mouth. Now, here's the thing here's something really natural that we do is that when we feel betrayed, we think that we get like a get out of jail free card on sins in our life, right? We think like, oh, get out of jail. Like, if people only understood, Right, like if people only understood um, that what it felt like for me, like people don't get it, people don't know um, the pain that I've been through, and so I'm justified in trying to tear this person's life to the ground. I'm justified in trying to get some for me. I'm justified in the thing that makes me feel better, right? Like I'm justified getting blackout drunk so I don't have to feel the pain of it anymore. I'm justified, like people don't understand, like it's fine for me, because this helps me. And Jesus' word to you is no, it doesn't. It might help you in the short term, but it it will hurt you in the long term. Sometimes we think like if someone breaks our heart, we think I'm justified. And you go run, running around and you think I will sleep with every person I can get into bed because it makes me feel better and I don't have to think about the pain of rejection. No, that will only hurt you in the long run. Like it says Jesus committed no sin, right? Like he didn't stoop to any level. And now if you're a person in the room and you're grappling with sin in your life, that's not to say in any way that anyone in this room thinks they're better than you because the gospel proves to us that we are not. Uh, we are here because we are broken, right? And so church isn't a place where you walk in and it's like a fashion show of holiness where it's like, look how much better I am than the rest of people. That is not church. Jesus describes church as a hospital for the hurting, right? Like that's who we are. But when it comes to pain, when it comes to betrayal, it says that he committed no sin, no deceit was on his mouth. He didn't launch a campaign to try to like ruin someone or like get everybody to turn on them. It says no deceit was on his mouth. And I understand where you're coming from. Like if you're that person, if you're that person and that friend spread gossip about you and they said something that was either true or not true, they just like perpetuated a rumor, I get that, that hurts. But in God's family, the right response is not, so I am gonna go around and I'm gonna spread something about them, right? Like sometimes it's like, oh, I've been holding on to this one. I know this thing about you and I've been a good friend and I've kept this to myself and I haven't told anyone. But now the floodgates are open. I'm gonna put that out there for everyone to hear. Like you wanna, you wanna go there? You wanna get your hands dirty? Let's get our hands dirty, right? That is not the response that we take in the family of God. We don't, we don't do it. Or maybe you're that person and like somebody shared something that you thought was private, you thought was between the two of you, and they screenshot it and put it on the internet. Or they screenshot it and sent it to a whole group chat of people. We don't retaliate in that way. We just don't. Maybe somebody breaks up with you and you thought they were the one and you don't want them to be happy with anyone else. And so you try to make it your mission to go around and just kind of like whisper in the ear of anyone you think that person might be interested in to ruin their reputation so they never wind up with the person that they want to be with because they broke your heart. And that is not how we operate in the kingdom of God. The invitation, my friends, is to take the knife that they put in your back and to drop it. 
Drop the knife. It says this, in 23, it says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And now here's something that's really important. I think like on the one hand uh, for the life of a believer is um, we've been touched by grace. Amen. Like, like I, I've been touched by grace. Like I should be punished for some of the things that I've done. Like I have not made good on my relationship with God in my past or the things that I've done with or to other people. Like I deserve worse than I get. And God has lavished on me grace, right? He's called me home. He's forgiven me. He's loved me well. He's counseled me through tough decisions. He's put favor on me. Like he has been so much better than I've ever deserved. And every Christian in the room will tell you the same thing. Like, we love grace. And at the same time, we hunger for justice, right? Like, they're, they're, like, we look around and we see an unfairness in the world, right? Like, when somebody betrays you, it hurts and it's not fair. And we want justice. But Jesus recognized that God is the one who judges justly, right? Like, it's not in my hand. In fact, when I accepted forgiveness, I've sold off my rights to judge anybody else. That's in God's hands now. And the Bible says, like, I will be forgiven so long as I forgive other people. And so for me, I hunger for justice. I pray for justice, but it's not in my hand to wield that sword. I got to drop that sword. It says this, it says, he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Check this out. Don't miss this, guys. It says, by his wounds, you have been healed. Think about that. Like the, the instrument for your healing, the instrument for my healing, the way that he is able to heal me, the way that he has been able to accomplish healing in my life from the things that I've experienced, it says, by his wounds you have been healed. With each lash of that whip, with each driving in of the nail, he was purchasing me. I belong to him. And if I belong to him, then I'm his, and he can fix anything that belongs to him. He can heal me. That's the gospel. By his wounds, I'm being healed. I'm being renewed day after day. And it's a process. My friends, take the pressure off yourself of like, great, I heard a sermon and now I'm supposed to be fine right now and it's my job. And it is a process that God will lead you through. Sometimes healing comes swiftly and sometimes it comes slowly. But with Jesus, it always comes. It lands here. It says, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. He's a good shepherd. He wants nothing but good things for us, my friends. And life hurts, but God heals. And so I want to invite you, we're going to worship right now, but I want to invite you, if you have business to do with God, maybe you've never prayed before, and tonight your next step is, I'm going to try praying for the first time and see if he's there. Um, maybe you've been walking with God for a long time, and you just need to do business. I want to invite you, the prayer walls are open. Um, any leader in the room would be happy to talk with you. Um, the band's up here. If you need to stand to your feet and get your hands in the air and sing loud, great. If you need to be quiet and on the ground or stay in your seat, great. Whatever you need to do to do business with God. Life hurts, but God heals, and he has healing for you, whatever that might be. And so would you pray with me before we go to him? Jesus, thank you that you're a good shepherd. Thank you that you love us. Thank you um, that you were wounded so that we could be healed. God, that you were beaten so that we don't have to beat ourselves up. Um, God, thank you for who you are, for how fiercely you love us, for how radically you love us. Um, God, thank you that you wash our feet, that you invite us into communion. Thank you that you've done that for me. So God, I pray that your spirit would be in this room. Um, you're always present, but God, would you fall in a fresh way, in a new way, uh, in a thick way tonight? God, we love you. Uh, we anticipate you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Calvary HSM podcast. We would love if you could connect with us on social media using the handle at CalvaryHSM805 on Instagram or going to our website, calvarywestlake.org slash HSM. We always have fun things going on and we want you to be a